Welcome to The Dish, an action movie review podcast by a couple of guys who don't know too much about movies or food, but we're going to try to watch a movie and then compare it to food. I'm a host of yours, Mitch. I am also a host who <laughs> happens to be the co-host of this podcast, Zach. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Is my face red? Yes. It's been so long. <laughs> <laughs> I can already feel a emerging four-hour podcast. Nah, man. I think we'll be out in like less than an hour and a half. I think you're probably right. I actually do. <laughs> um, welcome to The Dish, an action movie podcast going through a midlife crisis. <laughs> you think we're already at the midlife stage? Maybe we're at like our rebellious teen podcast phase. <laughs> what, what phase are we in if we're... A, a rebellious teen oh man i hope we're not rebellious teens teens i would like to think that we're like in the terrible twos it's our second season our worst season to date (laughs) well that's yet to be determined yeah so far it is based on the intros (laughs) welcome back to the pod seat zach it's been like nearly two months thanks man it feels good feels good to be back i cracked mine too early cheers oh cheers yeah we had a two-month hiatus our Email inbox was just getting ravaged with fans wondering where the fuck we were. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> we're happy to say we're back, baby. Back in action, movies. We're back for you and me. Yeah. It's still just you us. You and I are back in this room <laughs> still just recording us. podcasts together. I'm excited, though. Like I've been itching, itching, itching to talk to you about this movie. For no reason at all, because I feel very neutral about it entirely. Do you want to get into discussing movie now, or do you want to save it for shooting the shit a little bit? Let's shoot the shit a little bit more. I'm still trying to shake the rust off here. There was one thing that happened since our last... Nobody's watching, Mitch. ...recording. It's only the entire internet that can hear you. (laughs) (laughs) So this thing happened to me the other day. And I wanted to share it with you and see if you've ever had a similar experience. Katie and I were driving somewhere. I don't remember where, but we left the house. We were driving down Capitol Boulevard and we're just having a casual conversation. And Katie pauses and she goes, is she naked? I'm like, what? And I look off to the side and there's this woman who is completely naked. She's probably mid-30s, just waltzing down the sidewalk. On Capitol Boulevard, which for those of you who don't know Raleigh, is probably the busiest street in Raleigh. No clothes, no bag, no nothing. She was just walking along, kind of like raising her arm at traffic here and there. And it was just kind of surreal and random. And I was wondering if you've ever experienced any sort of like surprise nudity like that before. Boy, not that I can remember. I don't know that I've ever seen anyone just stark naked in a place where they shouldn't be. Yeah, you got me. You got me on the spot, man. Here, I don't know that I can think of any other stories like that. I mean, it was just so out of the blue and yeah. such a surprise. Like, you know, every once in a while you'll see like a dick in the locker room, but this was on a whole other level. Yeah, I mean, you see the occasional dick in a locker room, but never a tit in a highway. <laughs> Maybe if you're a trucker and somebody needs a ride, that's what they used to do back in like Smokey and the Bandit days. Is that the currency of hitchhiking on a truck? I think that's one way to do it. You show me a nipple, and I'll give you a ride. I mean, maybe there's more implications there. But, Nips uh, for miles? Not Maybe not these days. I don't think that anyone would, in their right mind would do that anymore. Yeah, not worried about getting COVID from a trucker? Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, their life. I would like to say, um, 
I witnessed this guy's preliminary defense Friday, this past Friday. I watched you use a whole bunch of big science words in front of a group of other people who understood the big science words. And uh, it was awesome, man. Congratulations on becoming a candidate. Thank you. Yes, I did a preliminary thesis defense. I pretended that I knew what I was talking about and everyone pretended that they believed me. How many of them were pretending that they understood you, do you think? Probably most of them. I, you know, I pretended like I, I understood what I was saying. It's kind of how it goes. Could have fooled me, dude. But yeah, Mitch here. Mitch and his wife came and watched me. So it was great having a support of really good friends. Went out for drinks afterwards. Got a little shwasted in margaritas. Yeah, we did. That was great. I told Mitch I was really craving margaritas. And he went, margarita for margarita with me. We had uh, many margaritas. I think we had five margaritas before we switched to something other than margaritas. Oh, uh, who's counting? <laughs> I was. It was mainly because we were like, you know, rating the margaritas as we had them. And the oh, yeah. probably least suspect place had the best margaritas. The, oh, the place where you wouldn't expect to find a good margarita? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was actually Mitch's, a bar called Mitch's. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I found that place in 1929. Really? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that old, Zach. Very pod relevant. There were a couple of movies filmed in this bar we were in. Some Dustin Hoffman movie. Bull Durham, right? Yeah. It was yeah, the one. yeah, that's one. I think it was another one, but Bull Durham's the most famous. Bull Durham was uh, Kevin Costner and Susan Sarandon in 1988. That place feels like it has vibes for uh, movie scenes. It feels like some bar from like an 80s frat movie. <laughs> I was thinking more like a hop and dive bar that you go to because it's a cool place and movie stars are only going to be seen in a cool bar to discuss their business. Oh, yeah. It's just like full of dark wood, dim lights. It just feels like a bar of old. Really cool place. If you're ever in Raleigh, North Carolina, go to Hillsborough Street and check out Mitch's Tavern. It's, you got to go up some old creaky stairs. It's just... It's kind of this nook that you miss. Zach, in fact, missed it as we walked to it from a different bar. He walked right past it. This is already two margaritas in. <laughs> Their margaritas were better, though, than Coco Bongo that we went to, which is, you know, they have a whole margarita menu. Of the two that I had, they were all pretty disappointing. Just overly sweet. It's also one of those places where you order a drink and it comes out faster than the waitress should be able to walk to the kitchen and back. I ordered it and it got to the table in about 20 seconds, I'd say. <laughs> it was a margarita in a, in a tub, a pre-made margarita in a tub, which is always just of very questionable quality. I want a it's margarita pre-made. in the gigantic margarita glass. It's like the size of a cereal bowl. Have you seen those? Oh, yeah. Those are always decent. Yeah. I had one of those in the mountains, a snowboarding trip. Ah, the alma mater of the margarita, the mountains. Of the North mountain Carolina. margarita. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> And they did not hold back. Nice. Well, now that the weight is off your shoulders with the prelim yeah. behind you, you're ready to get in some podcast. We kind of put this on hold. I did not want to push it because I know you were like balls to the wall getting your shit ready. Yeah. Much appreciated. You yeah. very could have easily been like, we got a schedule. We're trying to do it every two weeks. This dumbass podcast is not more important than your like years of schooling leading up to probably a very lucrative career. So. Well, we'll see about that when you hope. <laughs> but yeah, let's do it, man. I've been itching to put this prelim in the rearview mirror and get back to doing stuff like this and you know, just feel like I have a life again. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's jump in, dude. Today we are, I'm very careful not to say recapping. Reviewing? Reviewing 
Quigley Down Under. Yeah, so at the end of season one, we kind of decided on a different method for selecting our next episode, that being we will find an actor or producer, writer, director, something like that, someone who's associated with the movie we just watched, and explore them deeper in the next movie that we watch. So the last movie we did was Galaxy Quest, and we were talking about Alan Rickman, how much we love Alan Rickman, and just kind of off the cuff, I was like, well, there is this one kind of obscure movie that Alan Rickman's in that he's not really known for called Quickly Down Under. Have you seen it? And do you want to do it? The conclusion of that was, I have not. It's a beloved movie to Mitch, at least from his childhood. That's not true. It's completely, I'm completely un, unemotional about that movie. I have no feelings <laughs> okay. about it whatsoever, as you know. Uh, but yeah, it's a 1990, for now we'll say Western. We, we can tease out other genres as we review it, but starring Tom Selleck, Alan Rickman, and an uh, actress unbeknownst to me, but who was really good in it, Laura San Giacomo? I think that's right. She's Italian. Yeah. We discussed a number of changes between the last pod and this pod, and one of which was the selection mechanism that Mitch just mentioned, where we kind of daisy chain from one person from the movie and kind of find a connection and choose another movie. We've also talked about getting rid of the formal recap that we do because it's it can be a little bit too we get a little too up on our own asses about like reviewing and getting details and we want to get away from that the whole idea of the dish is the reason why we started was just from like we want to have more natural conversation where we talk about like oh what about this scene you remember that Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's a much more motivating style i think to mitch and i than like than having to slog through the mud of a scene-by-scene recap. Yeah. Yeah. And we do also like the scene-by-scene recap, but we feel like for our sake with having to do the edit, and by our sake doing the edit, I mean Mitch's sake doing the edit, you know, going into a four and a half hour recording and having to parse it down to less than two hours is a lot of work. And we also feel like there's a pretty good chance most listeners are not going to invest in a podcast that has an average episode length of like two hours. Now, if you feel differently about that, let us know. Send us an email at dishingthroughdecades at gmail.com. But otherwise, we're going to try out this new method. We're calling it our deep fried recap, where we take the recap of the movie and we tell it to you through the perspective of a random character in the movie. Is that pretty accurate as to what, yeah. like what we're doing? We we talked about each writing like a short little, you know, paragraph, a couple paragraph recap from the perspective of a character we'd each kind of dish off our thing spend a couple minutes doing that mitch took it upon himself to write a novel that'll take 10 <laughs> minutes to go through it's not so that i did not write a recap and i think we agreed mitch and i would just kind of maybe share the burden of not nah, i was a burden but share the responsibility of reading this <laughs> it's a burden zach let's never recap again well first though let's start out with uh what the big name streaming services call this movie or how they recap it how they describe it oh what streaming service do you want to use and i'm guessing so, you already have it pulled up i do i have okay. them both pulled up uh, you can actually watch quickly down under on amazon prime as of may 15th 2022 as well as hbo max as well as hbo max um amazon prime really they put a lot of detail into their description sharpshooter quigley gets hired down under <laughs> is that really it that's it that's all they that's, that's the, all they have that's one? their entire oh my god it's the entire thing hbo max gave you a little bit more to chew on an american sharpshooter in australia turns against an evil land baron after learning he's been hired to kill aborigines 
it gives you a little more meat to chew on, but still not a whole lot. But that, that's a pretty sufficient recap, I'd yeah. say. Yeah, I, I think so. And that, that kind of gives you the picture. You get you get that description probably the first 20 minutes of the movie, I, I would say. Yeah. Okay, well, first, I just want to ask you, what do you think about Quigley the character? At first, I was a little like, okay, I've seen this before. It's just like you're kind of generic, cookie-cutter, kind of machismo male hero or whatever. But as the movie went on, he felt a little bit less one-dimensional. I really came to enjoy him with all the little jokes he had. Like, I don't know that I've ever watched a Tom Selleck movie all the way through, but I feel like he he took a character that was mediocre on paper and brought a lot of life to him. He felt pretty lived in. And I ended up liking him a lot by the end of the movie where like if you just read me his lines and what happened, I would have otherwise thought he would have been pretty subpar character. I don't know. You're right. He really did kind of live in the character. I feel like in a lot of ways, he was like a walking dad joke. Like he had something to say for every single situation, but it, in the beginning, like you said, it was kind of like a uh, cheesy corny, but by the end of it, you just kind of love the guy. Cause he's yeah. And, and, in the beginning, it just feels like Tom Selleck was cast, you know, bring in all the kind of like hot and bothered moms. <laughs> and probably the Smoking the Bandit franchise uh, lovers as well. Oh, is he in Smoking the Bandit? Yeah, he was, he was uh, the bandit. Yeah. It felt like a weird casting choice. And like, you know, when you see like Arnold Schwarzenegger as like the action hero, it's like, okay, this is like so mm-hmm. like over the top typecast. What and it's expect? like they're trying to fit a role. But by the end, I was like, okay, like this actually feels like he, he and Quigley are like more than just like an actor playing a distant character. I liked him a lot. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the things about him is he has like an, an admirable code of honor and that, that really shines through in most of the movie. And the whole basis of the plot is because of that. Uh, but you can tell he's also pretty horny. <laughs> he's pretty horny. <laughs> pretty horny the whole movie. and pretty respectful. Yes, yes. He's quite respectful. Yeah, I feel like there's quite a lot of scenes where he's just like staring at women <laughs> in a very like lustful way. Can you give me some examples other than Cora? Is it just <sighs> that's a good point? Other than Cora, I don't know, but because half the time I feel like when he's staring at Cora, he's trying to figure her out because she's crazy the whole time. I don't reckon the lady's all that anxious to get in your wagon, Mister. Roy, oh Roy, it's you. Uh. I'm not Roy, He's like, what is with this lady who keeps calling me by the wrong name? There was one scene in particular that it caught my eye. It was when Cora was sleeping. Mm. I, I feel like a lot was made to show that it looked like she wasn't wearing a bra and like she looked particularly... Busty? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we were like, how do we say this? That's yeah. exactly the word that was in my head. He's just staring at her and she wakes up and he's like, oh, hello, booby, uh, baby. Hey. <laughs> there was a lot of sexual tension with him, I felt like. But yeah, he, he never, he made sure never to cross a kind of like self-imposed boundary. He was very much like, I will not do anything without consent and without knowing you're in your right mind. And I think that was good. Yeah. Yeah. For someone who's basically just a cowboy, you know. Yeah, uh, it didn't come off as overly righteous or whatever either. It felt like that was yeah. like kind of how just he was. Yeah. What are you doing so far from home? You can take me if you want to, Roy. Gun almighty, lady. 
go to sleep. Another another thing about him is that he, while extremely skilled, was incredibly modest about his skill. He never waved it in front of anybody's face. The premise is that he's a sharpshooter, right? He has this like custom rifle that that he's had made, and he's able to hit a target way the fuck away, you know, consistently. Dead eye dick. Yeah. He gets hired because he sends Marston, the antagonist, Alan Rickman's character. Yeah, the advertisement for the job, he sends it back to Marston with like holes in it and says, you know, Quigley 900 yards. So you, he, he wasn't like over the top about it. He was just like, this is what I do. Marston was looking for a sharpshooter and he surely got one. After a long email recovery process, I've managed to get Zach this Microsoft Word file with this deep fried recap. Today we'll be telling you the story of Quickly Down Under from the point of view of the Aborigines, in particular, uh, one single ab- Aborigine man who is in one of the... Um, yes, the servant. It's not the servant. Mm. Uh, this is just uh, one of the guys who's in the tribe that they end up with at one point. Okay. And this is like his journal. Friday. A very tall white man with a small furry animal on his face arrived on a boat today. He assaulted two of the Irishmen the ones who work for Murderer Marston, by hitting them in the face and genitals. The crazy woman in town has taken a likening to this one. Strangely, though, they left with the Irishman after their fight. Monday. The tall one they call Quigley apparently has a very big gun, able to shoot a small target from a thousand yards. Murderer Marston hired him to kill us, figures. But Quigley kicked Marston out of his own house. Too bad Marston has too many Irishmen working for him. They dragged the tall man and his crazy lady out and took them into the desert to die. This is proceeding much faster than I imagine it would. Right? We're already like probably 45 minutes into the movie. (laughs) I know, right? Wow, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Wednesday. We found the tall man and crazy lady nearly dead of thirst in the sands. It turns out the animal on his face is only hair, but quickly managed to kill the other two men who brought him out to die. One with his rifle, even with a swollen eye. Is that supposed to rhyme? Uh, it's not, but it does. <laughs> it like, it's written like a poem. Quigley managed to kill the other two men who brought him out to die. One with his rifle, even with a swollen eye. <laughs> a ritual and water have saved them. Turns out they are very friendly. The crazy lady isn't very crazy, perhaps troubled and deluded. They even showed us some useful skills, which we returned in kind. They aren't fond of the witchetty grubs we fed them, but tried to be polite. This sounds like it was written from two different voices. Does it? A little bit, yeah. Thursday. We left in a haste this morning. Marston's men found us and murdered several. Tall man quickly killed three of the five, and I managed to take out another, but one got away. Surely they will be all over us in a day or two. We must flee. Quigley took a horse and some canteens. What kind of man is this who defends us? May the desert be on his side. All right. Friday. Murderer Marston showed his evil today. I am told his men forced many of us off a cliff. Only one survived, a baby. Furry-faced Quigley showed up with his gun and killed several of the Irishmen. He's taken the baby to safety with the Lady Cora. We're going to meet Quigley in a nearby town to take the baby back into the tribe. Saturday. The nice German couple who owns the general store helped Quigley, gave him food, shelter, and bullets for his big gun. Murderer Marston made them pay. His men burned down the inn and killed the German man's wife. Thankfully, Cowboy Kit Quigley dispatched them 
before they destroyed the entire town. He sent one to Marston, telling him to inform Marston he's coming for him. Sunday. We met with Lady Cora and Tall Quigley in town today. Cora returned the baby to us. Quigley has set out to face Marston. We are all watching him closely. Perhaps he can rid this land of that evil man. Ah, I forgot. It's me again. <laughs> Monday. Sharpshooter is the word for what kind of man Quigley is. He shoots his gun with sharp precision. I saw him kill two men with one shot from a very long distance. What a wonder. He laid traps for the men who came into the hills to kill him. They did overwhelm him and dragged him to Marston, who challenged the cowboy to a duel with pistols, which Marston is very skilled with. But Quigley shot Marston and his two men in a flash. While he was cleaning himself, what is he, a cat? <laughs> no, he was just all like dirty from being dragged in there. And he was like washing off. Oh, okay. Yeah. While he was cleaning himself, the band of red-coated men on horses came to arrest Quigley. We all stepped out of the shadows to show our strength and that if the red-coated men harmed this honorable man, they would face all of our might. Tuesday. Today, Quigley and his woman, Cora, boarded the boat to leave our land. May their lives be joyful. That one was really short. The two ideas I came up with were doing it from the perspective of the Aborigines. Have it be someone who's like directly associated with Quigley and who's been kind of like observing him through word of mouth through, his, through the you know, different tribes and also directly. And the second one was doing it via oral tradition because the Aborigines, it turns out, are that's like how they keep all of their history is through you know, passing stories down through generations. In fact, doing some research, some of the oldest stories that are still told are like over 25,000 years old. Wow. Yeah, like it's just crazy how, I mean, that's like one big game of telephone, I figure, but you know, I was gonna say. you still kind of, I'm sure you still get the gist of, of what happened. So I did start doing a, uh, an oral tradition sort of like legend of Quigley down under as told from like, an adult to children, but I wasn't as fond of it as the the journal. So were the journal entries the thing that you said would take 10 minutes? Uh, no, I think that the legend would, because I, the first like two paragraphs I wrote were backstory. It was like, hey, oh, he, it was okay. like, you, you can read it. Like I've got, I guess it's what, four paragraphs there. I got, I got basically like four paragraphs in and I was only like 20 minutes into the movie. I was like, eh. Oh, so this is incomplete oral history. It's incomplete. Feel free to, to oh, read okay. it if you want, but it's, Oh, well your recap, uh, your version of the recap was not as long as I interpreted what you told me to, to be. This is a, this feels about right. It was good. That was cool. You liked it. I liked it. Okay. Yeah. I was like very uncertain because I had Katie read it last night and she thought I said to read it out loud. And she, she read through like the, the journal part. And uh, she got most of the way through it, reading it out loud. And I, and I was like, it's all garbage. <laughs> it's crap. No, it's cool, man. I mean, with, you know, each entry is like three lines, three or four lines. And it's double spaced between the days and then the entry for the day. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, it's like a little over a page. I, this, I, when I heard you say it would take 10 minutes to go through, I was like, oh, my God, this man has written like three pages, single spaced. No, no. But I... Didn't write a recap because I was like, "Well, this is gonna take so much. It's gonna be so like monotonous to get through." But I'm this is this is fun. I okay. like this. I'm glad to hear that, man. I'm relieved. 
And this is a really fun uh, perspective to take from the the side of the Aborigines who are like persecuted the whole movie. Yeah. At least by Marston. Yeah, for sure. I I learned a lot of cool shit about the Aborigines whenever I was researching, and it's just if you haven't, if you don't know much about the Aboriginal people of Australia, like their natives, look up a wiki article, check out a couple websites. They have a very rich culture, and it's just it's really cool. So. So from here, I guess we can talk about scenes that we liked. Anything stand out to you that, that you wanted to talk about in this movie? Well, I actually first wanted to, I had a proposal where we kind of flip some of the order of operations. Uh, say again? Oh my God. <laughs> where we kind of flip the order of operations where I would, I'll just ask you out right here, did you like the movie? Because I feel like when we go through the scenes, we didn't want to hide our true feelings and try and like ma- maintain the mystery for later. I see, Might as yeah. well get it out now, and then we can kind of litigate how our position, perhaps, as we talk through the scenes. Sure, sure. So uh, you may not know this, because I've been just telling you I feel completely neutral about the movie for the past two weeks. I know how you feel. I fucking love Quigley Down Under, man. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> it's, so, it's so much fun. Um, in the very beginning of it, it's it's like stereotypical cowboy western music and it's him just like getting ready getting his gear on you see him like get his rifle and like putting his knife in his belt and all this stuff and it's it's all shot in a way you don't see his face and then the first scene is him getting off of the boat into the harbor in australia and like kicking some ass but it's it's all very corny you know like it just it felt i'd forgotten how corny it was and I was afraid that I had completely misremembered the movie and that the whole thing was going to be that way. Thankfully, it wasn't. It's actually pretty awesome. This movie is probably a lot of people's, like, the genesis of their love of guns. So his gun is a 1874 Sharps Buffalo rifle. It's a lever-action breech loader. Usual barrel length's 30 inches. This one has an extra four. It's converted to use a special 45 caliber 110 grain metal cartridge with a 540 grain paper patch bullet. It's fitted with double set triggers and a vernier sight. It's marked up to 1,200 yards. This one shoots a mite further. An experimental weapon with experimental ammunition. You could call it that. That's experiment. Whitey. They really do a good job of, like, showing that this is an unusual thing for a cowboy to be able to do is to make a shot. Like, he's, he's basically a sniper, right? Like, he can shoot something that's, like, a man on a galloping horse, it takes him a minute to ride out to it, and then he can shoot it. Are you quite certain, Mr. Quigley, that you wouldn't like the bucket a bit closer? Quite certain. They do a really good job of showing how impressive it is with his skill. And as a, as a kid watching this, it's just like a holy shit moment. Well, he's got the little modified sights on it, right? Yeah. It's like the, I guess what I feel like I've seen on grenade launchers with the little like graduations. Yeah. Through like a little scope hole. Yeah. Like, so like a vertical metal thing or whatever. Is that to like account for... The bullet sinking from gravity? Correct. Okay. Uh, A lot of people don't know, but whenever you shoot a gun, provided it is perfectly level with the ground, 
the bullet drops as if you drop it from a standstill. It doesn't like go and then drop unless right. you have it in an arc. So yeah, that's exactly what that's for. Is so you can aim up enough based on the yardage to. It's kind of mind blowing to consider that if you shoot a bullet like in a direction where it's just uh, unimpeded and it can go until it hits the ground, it'll hit the ground at the same time as you as if you dropped the bullet from the same height you shot it from. Right. It's kind of wild. It's really cool. But yeah, that that of course like was the awesome factor for me, and I think that you get the action. Primarily from Quigley shooting his gun. Yeah, he, he does some like melee, some fist fighting here and there, and uses his gun kind of as a club, and that's pretty awesome. But like the scene where you get to see him pull his gun out and and wave it around in the way that he does, you know, flaunting his skill very modestly. That and then at the end, when there's the big like showdown more or less, and he he literally like double kills a couple guys. Three men ran off last night. Gentlemen. Kelly. Why the hell didn't you stop? Ah! Where is he? It's got to be way up there. That bastard's been sitting up in the rocks all morning, just waiting for two idiots to line up in his sights. God, it's just so awesome. Like, all this is to say, Zach, I really like Quigley Down Under. I think it's a great movie. It's a 90s Western, which is, I don't think there were that many of those. Wild, wild west. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to call that a western, I guess, yeah. Um, I love Quigley as a character. I love the character development that happens with Cora and finding out her like dark backstory and her kind of coming out of that yeah. because of Quigley. Just all around, it's, it's a, there's a great antagonist. He's not super present through most of the movie. He's just kind of sending his goons out to take care of things. Mm-hmm. I would give it a solid maybe a 9 out of 10. Wow, that's yeah. a strong rating, man. I really, I really wow. like this movie. How about wow. you? What's your take? I know you. This was your first time watching it, right? First time I think I've even heard of it. Yeah, not many people have heard of this one. It definitely flies under the radar. When I don't think that it should, I was pleasantly surprised. Really, I mean, I, I knew to expect a western, and then mm-hmm. after watching the first twenty minutes, like you said, I was like, "Oh God, I'm in for a real fucking turkey here." <laughs> but it got better. It got a lot better. But I still feel like it fell a little bit flat for me. Oh, yeah. Why is that? I guess the the main story didn't grab me. Hmm. It felt like it was a movie kind of without a cause a little bit. Like there wasn't really, like, yes, there was the conflict between Marston and Quigley. But I guess there wasn't really anything happening with the story for me to really chew on or like have to think about that much. It was a little bit flat in that regard. It's pretty simple, I guess, if you zoom out. That's the only reason why I can think of this film a little short to me, because you know there were a lot of other kind of fun moments. Quigley as a character was interesting. Cora had a lot of fun development, and like I think in other westerns, the heroine is usually very one-dimensional, mm-hmm. and she is very much not. Yeah. But yeah, to me, I I actually found myself like getting very easily distracted by the movie. From the movie? Yeah. Mm. Because it was, um, I guess it felt very kind of linear in a, I don't want to say predictable way, but in a way that I felt like it could have been written with a couple more like, you know, wrinkles in the story to make it a little bit more dynamic. That's a fair point. Yeah. But that is, that's, I I don't want to only focus on the negatives. That's like, that's why I guess I'm not. It you felt did. a little flat for me, but not a nine out of ten rating. A nine, nine out of ten. <laughs> it's still a fun movie. It's it's a very cool take on a western that I think, like you said, it's, there's not many westerns from the '90s. 
I think it was kind of revived in the 2000s a little bit. Like True Grit was one of my favorite westerns. Uh, yeah. The remake, that mm-hmm. is, at least. with um... You know this man. You know him very uh, well. Yeah, Jeff Bridges. <laughs> yeah, it's a really fun movie. I, I, you know, Maybe it's like a gun thing. I'm not as into the guns as you are. I mean, it, honestly, it wasn't even the gun so much as, the kid, as a kid. It was more so like his skill with it. General mm. badassery with his weapon. And also shrugging off pistols, which are like the dueling weapon of this time period. You know, every, every cowboy's got a pistol, right? Well, sir, I never had much use for one. Very modest about it. And then at the very end, the like, this is spoiler alert. If you haven't seen this movie, I'm about to talk about the end of it. Marston, who is very proud of how skilled he is and how quick he is to draw his pistol, being the villain who has to monologue and gloat and all that, now that he's captured him, it gives him one of his pistols and they, they have a, a standoff, like a showdown, and quickly kills three people before Marston can kill him. Yeah. Including Marston. And it's just like a like wow. Wow. That's that's modesty <laughs> right there. So yeah, if we're gonna give it ratings, I w- I would give it a, a seven out of ten. Okay. I mean it's, it's solid. respectable, it's yeah. solid, but I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it, I guess I'll say I got that. you. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember at one point thinking it's I got real Red Dead Redemption vibes from the movie. Oh, for sure. And I, I think I do with any Western. Like, I'm just like, oh, this is like so cool. But it almost like Red Dead Redemption can get a little old with like um, the little missions and side quests you get where mm-hmm. someone's like, my son ran off and I haven't found him. Can you go across the river and find him for me? Or like, it's just very repetitive, like mm-hmm. missions, whatever. At a certain point, Quigley felt the same way where it's just like every... 20, 30 minutes the movie, there'd be like the intermission of Quigley and Cora talking. And that was interesting in its own rights. But then like Marston's men would come trying to hunt Quigley down. Mm-hmm. And that happened like four or five times throughout the movie. It's true. It was pretty much like uh, Marston's men are killing Aborigines. Quigley saves the day. And that happens two or three times. I do, I do think, though, that um, Cora was, like you said, a pretty strong heroine. They gave her a lot to do, and she also was able to defend herself. Like, she pulled weight versus just being, like, I want to use Princess Bride as an example of a movie that, I know this is based on a book. One of the things that I really hate about certain movies is that the women are, they're portrayed as helpless. And Cora is very far from helpless in this movie. She, um, she fights off dingoes. She, like, lays a couple punches on a couple dudes in a scene or two. and. She has a very complex background and a lot to unpack there. And I, I like that they gave her that attention versus her just being like the, you know, sexualized uh, person for Quigley to fall in love with. Yeah. I mean, she was also that, but... <laughs> yeah. But like... Much more than just... Yeah, yeah. That one scene with her where she's... Um, it's like the redemption scene where instead, of, like, she's fighting the dingoes and the baby's crying. Mm-hmm. That was very much, like, that spoke so much to me because for so long, it's going to come out a lot different than what you might be expecting, but for so long, I've been, been wondering and, like, telling this thought to people of, like, how did humans ever survive? Because babies are so helpless. Not only are they helpless as far as animals go, like, so many, there are a lot of animals that are born and can just walk. Yeah. Almost instantly. Babies cannot walk. They can't feed themselves. They can't do anything. <laughs> yeah, they're worthless. <laughs> and on top of that, they're like a predator alarm. 
they're like a car alarm for any predators in the vicinity. Yeah. And I've been like, I've kind of told people this, like, how did we even like get out of, how did we exist beyond the first couple, you know, packs of humans or whatever? I think the consensus that I've kind of come to is like, this is where the um, idiom of like, well, it takes a village comes from is like, you can't be on your own and have a baby. Like your chances of surviving are so low because of like what happens in this scene. Yeah. Is this baby is just crying nonstop. And there's like, uh, wolves basically. Yeah. Dingoes, like um, wild dogs looking for food. But to your point about how did people survive? I think, well, weapons, you know, advanced tools, or even just being able to swing a club. But another one is fire. Most, um, mm, yeah, I, I feel like if you wave a stick with fire on it at any given predator at night, they're probably not going to fuck with you too much unless they're just like really fucking hungry. So that would be my like addition to like, it takes a village and probably also fire. Yeah. I was when, when the baby wouldn't stop crying, I, I found myself getting like, well, I was like, oh my God, this is like exactly what I've been saying for years. Like, this is a problem. <laughs> well, I can already see on Twitter tomorrow, like our legions of fans will be like, Zach hates babies. <laughs> Whatever. Cancel Zach. Yeah. Yeah. T- the scene is basically, and, and the backstory is that Cora's dark secret is that she strangled or suffocated her baby in America. And then her husband disowned her, dropped her off in Australia and left her. And so whenever they have this Aboriginal baby, Quigley has to go to town to get provisions and figure out what the hell they're going to do. And he leaves her in a cave with the baby and he's going to be back the next day. And that night, dingoes attack. And it's a similar sort of thing where in America, she strangled her baby by accident trying to keep, her, keep him quiet whenever her um, house was attacked by Indians. It really like drives up the tension because the same thing almost happens and you're, like, you're almost expecting it to happen. Cora really convinced me when she just like flipped the switch and was like, cry all you want. Let's make all the noise and just, we'll take care of anything that comes our way. Yeah. That was uh, what a badass. That's a pretty moving scene. Yeah, it was. I also wanted to comment on the fact that this is truly a 90s action movie because at one point, the action moves to the roof. <laughs> Uh, in the scene, whenever uh, in the scene when Quigley goes and he gets helped out by the German couple, he gets like bullets and provisions and whatnot. Um, Marson's men show up, they set fire to the inn, and Quigley is forced onto the roof <laughs> with his gun. Uh, Guns on the roof. Yeah, it ends up on the roof. He's like dropping potted plants on people down below, and it's great. What was that? That he like a chimney cover or something? Yeah, it was like a, it was like a. Uh, a chimney stack, basically. A big clay cylinder. Yeah. Without that, you have their 90s action movie. Yeah, it had to be. had to happen. This was before Air Ducts, so they had to, had to go on the roof. This is, this is an alarming hit rate for roof action scenes. <laughs> more, more roof action scenes than not roof action scenes, easily. Oh, yeah. I, I'd say we're at like 80%. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk uh, real quick about when was like the original Pocahontas story. When you say the original Pocahontas story, you're talking like Disney or like the real one? Like when was that popularized as like a pop culture story? Because this lines up, this fits the same narrative and falls in the same category as like Pocahontas, Dances with Wolves, shit, Avatar, probably a couple others, but like the fish out of water or like the American who sides with the natives. 
kind of story. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering where this sits in that history of pop culture stories. So there have been nine Pocahontas movies, uh, the earliest being 1910. Holy shit. So you could say that for the last hundred or so years, it's been in pop culture. Yeah. When was Dances with Wolves? I don't know. Dances with Wolves, also 1990. Oh, wow. Same year. I've never seen Dances with Wolves. Very similar concept. Also, Kevin Costner. But a movie where he basically sides with, like, changes teams and joins the Indians. I see. And I want to see that. That sounds good. It's kind of like, this is Quigley on top. (laughs) (laughs) I also wanted to say something about this movie, which is, I really wanted to have some interesting trivia for this episode. And there just wasn't any. I was Googling some stuff real quick today, and uh, it was... There was a... Very few and far between. There is yeah. very little trivia about this movie. It's, it's mostly boring shit that I don't feel like repeating. Uh, th- I think the coolest fact is that they made three different of the rifles. There were three rifles used in the movie. That's your most interesting fact. Not great. <laughs> What's that say about the movie? No, I'm just kidding. No. I wonder if that's intentional. Like, were they tight-lipped about? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it was filmed in Australia, and... I also wondered a lot about how the they obviously had like true Aboriginal people involved in the movie, and I wonder how you go about that. Like that's something I would love to know more of. Yeah, they literally had them jumping off of cliffs. Like those were scenes of them falling for many dozens of feet. Wow. I assume onto you know a safe wow. mat of some sort, but like I want to know like how they did that. Like how did they go about wow. that? And there's just not really that I could find any information about it. Do you want to talk about Marston a little bit? Yeah, sure. How did you feel about Alan Rickman in this role as a like gunslinging Englishman? Did the movie ever kind of elucidate like how he came to become a Australian oligarch? I think what you are led to believe is that he's basically just a very rich man and he has bought these this land from the British. But there's been nothing about like what he did in the former life or whatever. I don't think so. We don't really get much of his backstory other than the fact that his parents were killed by Aborigines. He's kind of like the Australian Texan. Yeah. Like like, if there were oil in Australia, I'd be like, oh, he was an oil guy. He seems pretty obsessed with cowboy culture though. Yeah, I'd agree with that. You were actually in Dodge City. William Hancock must have been there. But yeah, so this is a guy who's, I mean, his motivation for wanting to, I don't know if he wanted to genocide the Aborigines, but I, he, I think if he got the chance, he would do the genocide, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was driven by his parents being, in his words, slaughtered by Aborigines. They attacked so fast, my mother was found dead still holding us sewing. Which is more likely just a conflict where the English were trying to expand on the Aboriginal land, and they didn't like that. yeah. It kind of parallels with the Native American thing. And I imagine it was probably a very similar real situation it in was. Australia. It was. The English colonized and uh, very much oppressed the Aboriginal people. Was this when England was trying to establish Australia as a penal colony? It was. Okay. Same time. Yeah. Well, it was kind of a byproduct of them colonizing. They were like, oh, we can also just send our prisoners there. Great. Oh, so the original intent wasn't, let's make Australia a super jail. No. <laughs> it was just a big piece of land that hadn't been claimed in their eyes let's swing our dicks over here yeah exactly (laughs) are there any other scenes or anything you want to talk about before we get into like the dish part i guess one other note i really liked the dinner scene between alan rickman marston and tom Selleck. quigley 
I just kind of like the tension and kind of like the, the shot for shot. We go to Marston, then go to Quigley, then go to Marston. And you could kind of tell like the tension was rising as Quigley could tell that this was like kind of escalating to a racist goal. Unfortunately, in this country, we have failed in one regard. We have been unable to domesticate the most backward people in the world. The Australian Aborigine. Don't mind him, he's harmless. Mm-hmm. Maybe a perhaps genocidal. Once he heard that his parents were slaughtered by Aborigines, I could tell quickly, pretty quickly put his guard up and was like, oh shit, what's like this guy is not motivated by Yeah. Can, I think he already had his suspicions about what the fuck was going on. You can really hear the venom in Alan Rickman's voice, like Yeah. If I remember right, the scene ended with Quigley asking what Marston wanted Quigley to do. And the scene ended without Marston actually saying it. The movie just assumed you could read between the lines after Marston gets kicked out of his own house, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure you're I like that. I like that a lot. And it kind of turns it on its head too because in the same scene, or after Quigley has kicked Marston out of his house and he like wrangles all of his henchmen it's like go in there and get him. They're already all super intimidated by this giant gun that he's got. Has he got the rifle with him? He keeps it right beside him. And and they're not willing to go in. And he's so he's just sitting there menacingly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He he knows that he's the baddest cat on the property, and he's just kind of leaning leaning back in the chair, lighting up a cigarette, and just waiting for them to come for him. And out of nowhere, the Aborigine butler knocks him over the head and knocks him out. That Aborigine butler is like one of the biggest, I mean, that's what a character development arc. Yeah. The dude, does he ever even say a word? He never says a word, I don't think. He goes from the Aborigine kind of Uncle Tom to then like, just like once quickly kills Marston, he's like, fuck it, I'm going back to my people. Very symbolically, it takes his shirt off and starts kind of walking. Yeah. Kind of into and a little aside of the camera. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. Going back into my home. And presumably, he's the one who signaled that the Aborigine should go back to kind of like keep an eye on if Quigley will be okay. Here's another question. I was a little bit disappointed. The turning point of the movie is Quigley is, you know, just out doing his thing and he's constantly getting mercenaries sent by Marston to try and kill him. Mm -hmm. And after there's a kind of a, a point where Quigley's had his buttons pushed enough, and he says, okay, I'm going to go kill Marston. And he sends one of Marston's men back to tell Marston that. Yeah. At this point, I was like, I was bristling with excitement. I was like, oh, here we go. This is like the classic revenge story. This dude's going to go fucking postal, and he does. But it wasn't as epic as I thought it would be. And I also expected Marston to show like a level of fear that I was like ready to kind of dine on a little bit oh yeah and he didn't he was just kind of like kind of stupidly like all right we'll post men here and even though he's shown that quickly can just like easily dispatch them Mm -hmm. were you expecting for him to show a little bit of like prey animal instincts there i feel like marston was way too confident like just his character is and I, i think that it was actually accurate uh alan rickman's portrayal of it because he's up to this point the baddest motherfucker in Australia, you know, he's incredibly good with a gun. He has a bunch of Irish hitmen with him, a bunch of Irish mercenaries with him. And I think it was more that he just showed anger 
He just feels offended, and he knows that he can kill quickly. He never doubted that fact. I think his men do the job of showing that intimidation because they're afraid of him and his yeah. gun. He's just sitting in there with that big gun. You know, Marston is impressed by it. And he respects it, but he's never afraid of it. And that's actually, in my opinion, that's, that was his biggest flaw. Because a man who's that skilled with a rifle, you've got to wonder, is he good with a pistol too? And he just assumes he can kill him in a duel easily. I think it was, instead of fear, he was just angry. Because that's, that's really the emotion you get from Marston from the point that he realizes Quigley is still alive and killing his men to the end of the movie. Yeah. I, I wonder how the movie changes if you, if you play that, if, if that was played a little bit differently by Alan Rickman. If he kind of takes a stance of like, oh shit, I rung this bell that I can't unring. Like, I'm a hunted man until Quigley is killed. Rather than just being constantly frustrated that like you haven't killed Quigley yet. Mm-hmm. I wonder how the tone of the movie changes. That's if, a really good point because I think uh, in the end when he finally does get Quigley back to the ranch and he's like, you know, at point at pistol range with him, he would probably be even more sure of himself then because he's, he's over the fear of being sniped. Yeah. And just, you know, he's ready to use his skill against Quigley. Well, well, well. Mr. Quigley. Good of you to drop in again. Nothing clever to say? That's another thing, too. It was like the final duel. I wasn't expecting how unceremoniously it was executed. Not in a bad way. Oh, it you're was right. A yeah. little bit refreshing how quickly it just like went, but it was very uncharacteristic of an action movie or even a Western to have like the final showdown. There was no music, mm-hmm. there was no tension. Like, it was raw. It was raw. And the tension wasn't built from the music or sound effects or anything. The tension was just like the inherent, like these two people who have been for most of the movie kind of fighting each other via proxy kind of mercenaries are now just facing each other. And then all of a sudden it's just turned bang, bang, bang. And the guy's dead. No music, no nothing. It was just like the conclusion happened so fast. I love that about it. It doesn't build it up, and it it feels more real to me because at the point that Marston has gotten Quigley, like, and he thinks he has him dead to rights, it's him and two of his henchmen, and that's it. And this is down from like having over a dozen dudes. It's just him and two other guys. Yeah, and he's he's just like fucking finally I've got him, and you know. Sets him up for the duel, puts a pistol in his belt. Quigley's just been dragged like a mile, dragged by a rope on a horse. You know, he's really beaten up. Man, that horse dragging scene, all I can think of while he's getting dragged like across the field or whatever, was like, man, that wound's going to get so infected. (laughs) (laughs) In Marston's mind, he is 100% confident, and he just wants to do this because he wants to like, you know, push his face in the dirt. Yeah. I know how much you'd like to have your rifle with you at this moment, Mr. Quigley, but I think you'll find that I've got a much better idea. And I I love that, though, because the whole movie, Quigley has never used a pistol, and anytime he's asked about it, he's like, eh, not really into pistols. I remember the first time I watched it being like, oh, fuck, what's he going to do? He's all beaten up. He doesn't even have a holster. Martian just shoves it in his belt, like in the front. And it's just, to me, it was so satisfying when he pulled the trigger. This ain't Dodge City. 
And you ain't Bill Hickok. Cool, man. I feel pretty good if you feel pretty good. I do. I think we have other business to attend to, however. We do. So the next question is, if you found yourself a true hero in Quigley Down Under. Of course I did. True Hero is our segment where we talk about a character who kind of surprises you and amuses you in one way or another. Traditionally, it's someone, it's a character who has a notable impact, even if it's a small impact to the overall trajectory of the movie, but somebody who probably is maybe helps out the good guy is kind of how we've loosely defined it. That was a really shitty explanation, so feel free to cut that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My true hero is one of the henchmen, I guess, Hobbs. Okay. Which one is Hobbs? Hobbs is the one that looks like little Dicky, the guy that got shot and quickly left a gun with. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, so I gave my true hero mainly because he looked just like little Dicky. <laughs> Zach's criteria for true hero. Does he look like little Dicky? Check. That's my season two criteria, whereas my season one criteria was mustache. But also less of a criteria was he told quickly how to get to the Marston ranch. Mm-hmm. This is another interesting point in the movie, like of just like adding a wrinkle to Quigley's character that felt very out of place. But Quigley gave Hobbs a gun, who Hobbs was shot in the gut and asked to be killed so he would be put out of suffering. Now finish me. You got one shot left in that shooter. Make the most of it. Quigley handed him a gun. And uh, Hobbs pointed it right at Quigley. And Quigley didn't, doesn't flinch, stares down the barrel for like two seconds and says, there's only one bullet, so, you know, like, make a smart decision with what you're going to do with it. It felt very uncharacteristically... Cold? Self-destructive isn't the right word. It feels like something the Joker would do, not Quigley. Mm. Like, just, just coolly looking down, like, imminent death and being like, it's your call. That doesn't feel I like know. quickly. I feel like it kind of does, though, because he's shown himself to be pretty hardened, right? Even though he clearly has a lot of empathy. But at the same time, I don't think he's the type of guy who's going to shoot a wounded man in the head. That doesn't feel like him either. Third option is like just what, leave. Bandage him up? Or give him a gun and give him an empty gun and put a bullet like far enough away would he have to like roll over to get it or something. You so know, is it like, the chaos factor of like he could shoot me or he could shoot himself? That Yeah, that's exactly. It's the sheer amount of chaos that's injected there that I did not feel like stuck okay. with Quigley's character. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point because he's, he's shown himself to be incredibly logical up to this point. And that does feel like definitely a chaos factor that, that you wouldn't really expect. Yeah, logical. But and... <laughs> okay. I got a but for you, though. What is more of a chaos factor, this scene where he gives a man a loaded gun or where he kicks Marston out of his own house knowing that Marston has a dozen armed Irishmen at his disposal? You see, that's principles, and that's sticking to them. Well, my, this could also mind. be principles, couldn't it? The man is wounded. They're in the middle of the desert. There's no saving him. He knows that. Yeah. Like, he either kills him in cold blood, shoots him in the head, puts him out of his misery, or he lets the guy do it himself. 
Yeah. And this is also a man who has just forced a bunch of people off a cliff who are completely innocent. It's principles that give him the gun, but for a man with a man with reflexes of those as quickly to allow the man with a loaded gun to point at his face seems off. It was pretty cool though, wasn't it? It was very cool. <laughs> Maybe this is a scene where the writing overrides the character. Maybe it doesn't like. I'm not. This isn't like detracting from the movie at all. Anyway, my so. Hobbs is my true hero, mainly because they look like little dicky, but also for all the other shit he did, like as he was, you know, giving his, being given his out as a character. I got you. Uh, what about you, Mitch? Well, you know what, Zach? I've really got to pee. Do you remember if I do that before uh, I talk about mine? Go, uh, I'm doing Go it. drain that little dicky. <laughs> <laughs> look at my horse. My horse is amazing. Give it a lick. It tastes just like raisins. Feel better? Uh, Come check us out. I watched this video the other day for the first time in like 10 years. 10 years? I, fastest hot dog eater? Actually, more than 10 years. Probably 15 years ago. <laughs> Real quick. It's, it's, yeah, only 40 seconds. But I see it. <laughs> Speaking of hot dogs. We're going to go viral with this one. <laughs> I just did something I've never done before. Do you ever do something you've never done before that is part of a, like something you do routinely and it surprises you? I just did that. Can you can you expound upon that? It's not it's kind of graphic, but I went to the bathroom to pee and I'm wearing gym shorts and under like underwear with an elastic band. And so I pulled the gym shorts down, got my junk out and was peeing. In the middle of the pee, the gym shorts and underwear elastic band slipped from my thumb. And snapped me right in the testicle. <laughs> it really hurt. <laughs> and I've never done that before. And it was one of those things where I'm like, how have I never done that before? And it's going to happen right now. So, yeah, that just happened. Um, I've got that dull ache up near the bladder area that you get with that. You know, I, I think I've done that before when I was really hungover or like <laughs> in the middle of the night or something. And I think it went a step further where oh, no. as I was peeing, it just like went back to the original <laughs> position. So I was like peeing all over my shit. <laughs> like, oh. oh my God. Did you find yourself a true hero, my man? I did. And interestingly, mine, my guy swapped sides a little bit. Your guy was on the side of the antagonist. My true hero was the Aborigine butler. For the sole reason is that he completely surprised me. In the scene where he knocks out Quigley, just before this, his boss is just talking about how much he hates the Aborigines and he wants Quigley to kill them. And then he proceeds to knock out Quigley. Not five minutes later. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's completely out of left field, which is what we want for a true hero. But beyond that, he also kind of, that sets the stage for the rest of the movie because I think without that happening, the movie would have ended right here. In yeah. that Quigley probably would have gotten killed. Yeah. Or he would have killed all of them, one or the other. But because of that, he's knocked out. And so instead of just shooting him in the head, Marston opts to beat him up and throw him out in the desert. And the rest of the movie can happen. It sets up the meat and potatoes of the movie. Admirable true hero. Thank you, sir. All right. I do want to add in one more segment here before we get to the dish. Do you want to talk about any of the henchmen in this movie and their effectiveness? Oh. Are any of them worthy of our tier list? Yes, most definitely. There's one part of the movie, though, that I'm a little bit hazy on, 
and it very much influences the effectiveness of these. We have a few, right? We have like, there's some, they're mostly Irish, right? I guess they're mostly, mostly Irish, and I'd say there's at least 10 of them. Only, I say, six are ever named throughout the movie. And there's one who wears like this, I guess it's Irish, but to me it rang as Scottish, but the little like golf cap with a little like bob, like circular bob thing on top. Yes. Uh, I think both. I want to say that the Irish and the Scottish both have similar garb that they wear. And he, he also wore a kilt. Oh, really? Yeah. Is he the one who shot quickly? Or was that somebody else? I actually think it was him. He was at least he was at least in the band of couple guys who went up into the hills and ended up bringing him back and also shot him. So yeah, I want to say yeah. I mean, I would say out of all of the henchmen, he was by far the most effective. But in aggregate, I would say the henchmen were all fairly effective it's just they were massively outgunned yeah they were not given the tools they needed for facing a guy like quigley they were great at killing aborigines yeah yeah super effective at that you're right yeah they i mean they had conventional weapons they had pistols and they had like carbines and quigley he's got a single shot gun but it's like a one shot one kill sort of thing yeah also just like the skill difference they're your average like solid henchmen yeah. But Quigley is no match for any mortal man. Where does someone like Quigley come from? Like, where does he get that skill? Is he just like a hobbyist? Like, all he does is sit in his backyard and shoot targets? Or did he, was he in a war? Like, we never get any background on that. That's a great point. That would have been a great scene to show. It's like, even if they had peppered in, like, some flashback after he shot someone to, like, to some prior war or something, would even have been a nice little bit of color on him. Yeah, that's a definitely a segue, but I, I do wonder, like, because you're just given, here's Quigley, he's a badass, he can do all these things, Yeah, but yeah. you don't really know why. It's because he's American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, so I agree, the, um, I don't remember his name, that Irishman, the guy with the, he was my favorite as well. I was like, dude, what are you doing wearing, like, traditional Irish wool in Australia? You look awesome, but... Dobkin is Dobkin. his name. It's safe to say that he was... This henchman was pretty badass. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He was one of the last three alive. He shot Quigley. He looked awesome. He had a mustache. I'm pretty sure at least he had a beard, didn't he? The mustache is the part of a beard. Yeah, it counts. Sort of, yeah. You know, we call ourselves a dish uh, for a reason. And it's not just because we dish back and forth. It's because we compare these movies at the end to a dish. And so, Mitch, with that in mind... What dish was this movie to you? I'll tell you, Zach. Quigley Down Under, to me, was country fried steak with wichetti grub grits. What is wichetti grub grits? So you remember the scene whenever they, uh, they get saved by the Aborigines and they like feed them a bunch of food. And one of the things they feed them are these big, plump, white grubs. Those are wichetti grubs. And those are actually a traditional food of the Aboriginal people. It's, oh, that's wow. that's that's true. Um, they the actors don't actually eat them. They eat like uh, it was rolled up flour to made to look like a grub. Okay. But uh, the reason why it's country fried steak with wichetti grub grits is because this is a western. And when I think about a western, I think about like good fried like country meal. That being the country fried steak, and then the wichetti grub grits are the fact that it's it's in Australia and it, the Aborigines are a huge factor in the movie. Like they're the whole motivator for the plot. And so 
it's grits that it's wachetti grubs that have been like mashed up and made into grits to go with the country fried steak. <laughs> nice, nice, solid dish, dude. Thanks. Simple. Yeah, yeah, but on a uh, on point. Like I think it's it's simple, straightforward, but gets at the heart of what Cooley Done Under is. Thank you, sir. Yeah. How about you, man? What would you dine on if you were watching this movie? I, yeah, I could dine on this, but what this movie was to me kind of symbolically is carbonara pasta. Ooh. I thought about doing spaghetti with meatballs for a second, but <laughs> I'll tell you why I'm doing carbonara. Do you want to describe the difference between spaghetti and meatballs and carbonara? What is carbonara? I've had it, but I don't remember what exactly makes carbonara carbonara. So carbonara is... Well, I'll start off with saying what spaghetti and meatballs is. Obvi- you know, it's obvious, but it's it's you don't necessarily have to compare it to cooked spaghetti. spaghetti with meatballs, and that's like basically it. And you know, tomato sauce. Carbonara is cooked spaghetti, of course, but it's also basically spaghetti, no tomato sauce, and it's basically in almost like an egg custard. Typically, to be carbonara, it also has to be with some kind of cut from pork. Oh, so in Italy. It's either typically with pancetta or some other snobby meat that you like, can't really like find cured in America. Pork. Yeah, some other like really fancy cured pork that you have a hard time finding. It's very expensive. Pancetta is okay to find, but people typically substitute with bacon. So basically, you cook bacon at a low temperature to render the fat. Mm-hmm. While that's happening, once your bacon's almost fully cooked, you cook your pasta, which is like it's typically a thinner pasta. Then you kind of cut your bacon up into little pieces. So it's like, you know, you have a few distributed throughout the pasta. While that's all happening, you crack an egg or two, mix it up. And in with the raw egg, you put a bunch of Pecorino Romano cheese. Hmm. And so you make this like egg, sl- egg cheese slurry. Hmm. Then you turn the heat from your bacon off, put your pasta in the bacon, a dash of pasta water. Let it cool down for a second because you're going to add your eggs and you don't want the eggs to cook. So you add your eggs after it's cooled down a little bit and you stir real quick because you don't want the eggs to curdle. Mm-hmm. So what you get is kind of like almost like an egg white in a mixed drink, how it gets all kind of frothy. Yeah. When you add a yolk in the mix, it kind of turns into like a custard with the heat, but you don't want it to curdle. Sounds so it becomes delicious. This really decadent kind of, but it's a classic meal. It's, it's a, one of the four, I think they're called classic Roman pasta dishes. Okay. Yeah. So it's one of the four really classic. Italians love it, but they're very specific about it. You have to use either, maybe even pancetta is a little bit taboo, but you have to use either pancetta or this other cured meat. I can't remember what it's called. No garlic. You have to use um, like certain proportions of cheese, whatever else. But I think a lot of people in America kind of bastardize a little bit and, you know, make Italians roll in the graves. They use garlic. Use they bacon. use bacon. <laughs> and then they maybe use other cheeses. So this for me is pasta carbonara, but... It's turkey bacon, and you add garlic. And so it's still good, but it's like, it's there's some, I wouldn't use turkey bacon. I, I've used regular bacon before. So is it like, is this because it's a Western in Australia? It's because it's a classic. This is a classic okay. genre, and it kind of adheres to it a little bit, but it's a little bit fresher. There's kind of a twist on Modernized. it. I like garlic in carbonara. It just adds a, you know, another flavor that's really nice in the meal. But there's also, it's like not perfect. It's, there's, it's turkey bacon. I, I wouldn't like, I, would, I wouldn't be a fan of turkey bacon carbonara because there's not a lot of fat to bring out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably also not, I think you can use Pecorino Romano and Parmesan. It's, I think it's maybe Pecorino Romano and cheddar. 
um, it'd still be delicious and it'd still be good. It's just like, yeah, there's some things that I'd maybe change, but you know, it's a good meal. Okay. It's good. It's a good hearty, little bit of a twist, a little fresh, but still some uh, kind of weird take on a classic. All right. Man, what an educational dish you just had. I learned so much about carbonara. Here you go. Carbonara. This is, this is carbonara, specifically carbonara, not carbonara. <laughs> this is carbonara. This is carbonara. Yeah. The American bastardized version of carbonara. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I like it. We are, look at us growing with our dish knowledge. Yeah. I have to say, this was one of my shortest dishes ever. Yeah. Very short. It's, um, we'll see how it turns out on the final product, but it was short, but good, dude. I don't think you lost quality with the quantity. Good. Good. Well, dude, I think we've done it. I think we've done Quigley Down Under in less than two hours of raw recording. Solid dish, dude. Boosh. Nice. You just want to hit stop? No, no, no. We have to thank a couple people. I've already stopped. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I want to thank you, Zach. I thank you first and foremost for doing this podcast with me. I want to thank you for keeping this podcast alive. If it weren't for you, I don't think it would still be going on. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I know I can be a little... Um, I, don't know, I don't think I've been overbearing. No. Have I been overbearing, Zach? No. Zach, have I been overbearing about you're this podcast? You're consistent <laughs> and you're very even-handed. Like You're not overbearing. You're just consistent and very understanding about things that come up in life and everything. I mean, how else are you to continue moving forward if not being understanding of what other people have going on in their own lives? There you go. So um, all I have is this podcast, Zach. Please do it with me. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> That's not true. Um, but thank you for all that. Yeah, dude, anytime. We, uh, we have been rolling around some ideas and <laughs> some some ideas and some new names for our title of the podcast. Oh ah, yes. I think we've settled on one. Uh you can confirm with me. We I think are going to change the name of this podcast to we're thinking of doing the dish real to meal. Isn't that right? You're right, man. Yeah. We were trying to think of something clever that gets across what we do in this podcast. That is comparing a classic action movie to food. In as little words as possible. We think that we've done it with that. Yeah. I think we're pretty happy with that. So if you, if you do like it, don't like it, write us in. Yeah. Let us know what you think about the new title of the dish. Let us know what you think about this new format. This is completely off the cuff. The deep fried recaps I think we're going to stick with for the whole season. See how it goes. This may be kind of an experiment. And if you greatly prefer this to the previous season or you greatly prefer the other, let us know. Zach has something to say. It's very important. We we got to figure out what the next movie is that we're doing. Oh, shit. Who's the, who's the connection? How could we forget? That's a really good point. Okay, well, who have we got? We really have Tom Selleck to work with, don't we? Unless the director or writer is significant. No one else jumps out at me. All right, so the things we have to work with, we've got Tom Selleck, Alan Rickman, Laura San Giacomo, Ben Mendelsohn. What about the writers and director? Writer John Hill, director Simon Windsor. Let's see what Simon Windsor's directed in the 90s. Nothing. <laughs> this is his only 90s movie. Man, it's looking like there's not that much directly associated with the people who made and or acted in Quickly Down Under to fall in our 90s action movie category. Yeah. 
there are a couple that you could maybe make the case are action, but they look like they're not that good, and they're like very tangentially kind of action. Yeah, it's like a the fourth genre mentioned, or it's not mentioned at all. Like it kind of smells like an action movie, but it's not really. They probably made it look like an action movie in the trailer, but it turns out it's just a drama. Uh, <laughs> um, well, sure, that leaves us kind of in a pickle. We've, we've I mean, written we, ourselves in a hole here. Not necessarily, because we have done... It's safe to say that we have done some pure action movies, but they generally also have a secondary like subgenre. And I would say that Quickly Down Under is a Western in addition to being an action movie. Do you, what if we could find another like 90s Western? There aren't many of them, I don't think. I'm going to Google 90s. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? I already am, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, there's more than you'd think. Well, that's wild. Man, that's that's wild indeed. Is it wild it's wild? It's wild wild, man. Wild wild western movies? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's stuff like Legends of the Fall, Brad Pitt, 1994. Oh, okay. Tombstone, 1993. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. Unforgiven, 92, Clint Eastwood. Uh, Tombstone is what? Uh, who's that? Is that Kevin Costner? Kurt Russell. Val Kilmer. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Elliott is also in it. Yeah. Wow. The, the okay. Quick and the Dead. Man, there were a bunch of 90s, 90s Western movies. Were, yeah, wow. I'm a little surprised. Well, I think it's safe to say that uh, we have our sights set on one of them. Tombstone is actually looking kind of attractive, man. Yeah? I Okay, I feel like it's between Tombstone and... I've never seen Tombstone. And Wild Wild West. I've never seen Tombstone either. Is it safe to say that in any 90s Western movie is also an action movie? Tombstone is listed as a Western slash action. Legends of the Fall is listed as a romance slash drama. So I guess we need to be yeah, selective here. I'd say that's probably lower on the tone of pole. Unforgiven, Western slash drama. Quick and the Dead, Western slash drama. Maverick, Western comedy. Click it down under, Western slash romance. What have we done? Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Oh, Dances with Wolves. You mentioned that one. Yeah. Western drama. What about Wild Wild West? Western action. There's another one. I don't know if I'd call this a Western, but I guess it is. Desperado. I think it's a um Who's the lead actor in that one? Antonio Banderas. Oh, right. Okay. It, this is also a uh Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. I want to say he's associated with that movie in some way. He's at least in it. I've huh. seen it. I watched it earlier this year for the first time. It was super fun. All right, so we've got a few heavy hitters here. We've got Wild Wild West, Desperado, and Tombstone. Which one would you vote for? Of those three? Yes. My first pick would probably be Wild Wild West, just because I remember it being a lot of fun, even though it's objectively bad. Yeah. Tombstone's my first choice, mainly because I haven't seen it, but also because the cast seems really good. Yeah. Some some, uh, heavyweights here. Yeah, this would be my first choice, just based on... Also got a fairly decent rating. Okay, so since we have conflicting choices, how do we resolve this? Flip a coin? I'd say let's toss a coin. So one of our first choices gets chosen. Toss a coin, it'll be between Wild Wild West and Tombstone? I'm down with that. Sure, let me find a coin. (laughs) I think I'd be more happy with watching either Wild Wild West or Tombstone than Desperado. I have returned with a quarter. 
I'll flip it. You call it. Whatever you call will be Tombstone. Whatever else will be Wild Wild West. Yep. All right. Here we go. Call it. Tails. It is heads, my friend. Uh oh. All right. Wild Wild West. Did Will Smith like rap that song? Yes. Wild Wild West is listed as a Western action movie. Western before action, but this will be a fun one. 1999 steampunk Western film, according to Wikipedia. I'm ready. We'll be slapping our way back at you next time with Will Smith's Wild Wild West. Slapping our way. Uh, Somehow we managed to turn a uh, podcast ending in about an hour and a half into over two hours. Yeah, we're at two hours, ten minutes on the pod doomsday device. We got to quit while we're ahead. Who else do we have to thank, Mitch? Uh, well, we want to thank our listener, <laughs> <laughs> who must not be named. No, really, though, we just want to thank our, I guess we'll thank our friends for continuing to support us and encourage us to keep doing this stupid podcast. And I want to thank anybody else who listens. You know, we do get a bunch of random listens from all over the place, people we don't know. Thank you. For, for tuning in and checking out this bullshit that me and Zach are doing. We have a good time with it, and we hope you enjoy it. Yeah, it means a lot. It means a lot. So we will see you next time for the Wild Wild West as we uh, dig our teeth, sink our teeth into that one. I'm hitting stop. Are you? Stopped. Oh, fuck. Blanket behind my eyes. Oh, like a little buzz? Yeah. Blanket behind your eyes. It's about the only way I know how to describe it. It just kind of uh, pushes your consciousness slightly further back into your brain. <laughs> Precluding the possibility of having a single thought. <laughs> exactly. It's entirely instinctual.